0: So we've come to part two of our series in Daniel, and uh, as you can tell probably from the recording quality that uh, this is not part of the original series, Um, that particular message was uh, either recorded and lost or not recorded at all, so I've gone back to my notes and uh, they were also very um, sketchy, and so I um, tried to fill my notes out as much as I thought I could, and... um, Bring uh, this message number two as part of um, this series, um, and I found that it's, it's really quite a, a technical message. It's, uh, it's uh, more of a lecture than a sermon, but hopefully it uh, gives the listeners the continuity as to the thoughts that I'm trying to bring forward here in Daniel. And so uh, what I'd like to do is uh, begin by reading Daniel chapter 1 and verses 18 through the end of the chapter and pray and then we'll get into this uh, sort of a technical message. Let's read Daniel chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Now at the end of days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them and among them all, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So the message today um, isn't really a commentary on the text that we just read. I just thought that it would be nice to have a text in mind that talks about the culmination of the training that Daniel and his friends went through. And um, what I really want to do today is to uh, give you um, an overall view or a a high flyover of the structure of the book of Daniel. And then at the very end of the message, just some practical uh, advice or some practical illustrations Um, that we can hopefully take into uh, the week that's ahead of us. So let's pray and then we'll look at the overall structure of the book of Daniel. Father in heaven, in a message like this, it's so easily to get caught up in just the details. I pray that um, your spirit would work through even this message and that we would learn something that would cause us to love Christ better in how we walk, and how we talk in this life. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The overall structure of the book of Daniel. The book can broadly be divided into two major parts. The overall historical narrative is found in chapters 1 through 6. The prophetic visions and dreams that intermittently take place in Daniel's life are found in chapters 7 through 12. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 6, deals with the history of Daniel and his three friends in the time of their captivity in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, brings captives back to Babylon, enlists one of these captives, Daniel, to tell and interpret his dream, builds an image in his pride, encounters the God of Israel through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is humbled, becomes a believer of sorts in the one true God, and disappears from the narrative. His descendants lose the empire to the combined Medo-Persian empire. Chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic or prophetical literature. Daniel has visions and dreams in which the angel Gabriel comes to him to tell him of things that are to come. It is this part of the book that causes the controversy historians have in dating the writing of the book. Daniel weaves these two halves together in such a way that they act as mirrors for one another, giving even further clarity to the prophecies revealed to both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. If we were to read the book of Daniel in chronological order, you would read it in this order, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Then you would skip and read chapters 7 and 8. Then back to chapter 5. Then you'd move ahead again and read 10, 11, and 12. Then chapter 9, and finally chapter 6. Reading it in this order, gives us as modern readers that are accustomed to narratives being given chronologically an easier time understanding the timeline of Daniel's captivity. But, having said this, the structure of the book is so finely tuned, so carefully crafted, that the so-called additions to the book in the Greek apocryphal writings destroy the perfect balance God provided through the pen of Daniel. That's a topic for another time. The prophecies in chapters 7 through 12 are so accurate that when secular historians attempted to date the book in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they dated it to between 168 and 163 BC, after the prophetic events had supposedly taken place. These historians provided two main, they called them proofs, to discredit the early date of the book of Daniel to about uh, the 5th or 6th century BC. These are the two things they cited. Number one, the lack of historical evidence for the existence of anyone named Belshazzar. And number two, the accuracy of the prophecies given in the book. Then, two things happened. The so-called Nabonidus cylinders were discovered by archaeologists that mentioned Belshazzar, the son of Nabonidus, who was the rebellious son of Nebuchadnezzar. So when you read toward uh, the end of the the overall narrative of Daniel that he is dealing with the son of Nebuchadnezzar, this is a a biblical phrase that means the descendant, uh, the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's actually his grandson. And there's an interesting story there. Um, Nebuchadnezzar leave, uh, left the kingdom to Nabonidus, his son, who wasn't in the least bit interested in ruling. He moved to some city and just used his wealth to, uh, to while away the time. And he, uh, in the meantime, his son, who was Belshazzar, ruled in Babylon. Secondly... Many scrolls containing fragments of the Book of Daniel were found in Qumran, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to between 100 and 150 BC, forcing secular historians to reinterpret the identity of the four kingdoms in a very unconventional way. And we'll touch on that just a little bit. The widely held secular view that the Book of Daniel is largely fictional rests mainly on the modern philosophical assumption that long-range predictive prophecy is impossible. Therefore, all fulfilled predictions in Daniel, it is claimed, had to have been composed no earlier than the Maccabean period in the 2nd century BC, after the fulfillments had taken place. But objective evidence contradicts this hypothesis on several counts. Number one. To avoid fulfillment of long-range predictive prophecy in the book, the adherents of the late-date view maintain that that the four empires talked about in chapters 2 and 7 are 1. Babylon, 2. Media, 3. Persia, and 4. Greece. But in the mind of the author, Daniel, the Medes and the Persians together constituted the second in the series of four kingdoms. You can look at that in chapter 2 and verses 32 through 43. It becomes clear then that the four empires are, rather than what I just listed, they are 1. Babylon, 2. Medo-Persia, 3. Greece, and 4. Rome. The language itself argues for a date earlier than the 2nd century. Linguistic evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrates that the Hebrew and Aramaic chapters of Daniel must have been composed centuries earlier. Furthermore, the Persian and Greek words in Daniel do not require a late date. Some of the technical terms appearing in chapter 3 were already so obsolete by the 2nd century BC that the translators of the Septuagint, which is the pre-Christian Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated them incorrectly. And number three, several of the fulfillments of prophecies in Daniel could not have taken place by the second century anyway, so the prophetic element cannot be dismissed. The symbolism connected with the fourth kingdom makes it unmistakably predictive of the Roman Empire. And you can read that in chapter 2, verse 33, and also in chapter 7, verses 7 and 19, which did not take control of Syro-Palestine until 63 BC, after the so-called date, late date, of the book of Daniel. Also, a plausible interpretation of the prophecy concerning the coming of the Anointed One, the Ruler, approximately 483 years after the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem from chapter 9, works out to the time of Jesus' ministry, also 160-some-odd years after the latest date of manuscripts that we have for the book of Daniel. Objective evidence, therefore, appears to exclude the late date hypothesis and indicates that the reason to deny the prophet Daniel's authorship is weak indeed. Let's look at the contents of the book of, uh, of the book of Daniel. The book is begun in the Hebrew language, as it was uh, designated to be read by Jewish folks, but it switches to Aramaic, which is the more universal language spoken. Throughout that part of the world, in chapter 2 and verse 4, and it stays in Aramaic right through to the end of chapter 7. Then, chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew again. It seems as though the parts of the book written in Hebrew are primarily for a Jewish reader, whereas the part written in Aramaic was for a more universal audience. This theory alone, if true, has major implications on a reader's understanding of the prophecies in Daniel. Moving forward, after this very technical part of the message, I want us to consider five things concerning Daniel and his three friends that we read here in these early chapters. Their city was destroyed. In other words, they had a a loss of all their material wealth and they accepted this. Their families were killed or captured or in other words, they had a complete loss of family relationships. They accepted this. They were dragged off to a foreign nation and culture and in this way as captives completely lost their dignity. They accepted this. They were given new names. So in other words, they lost their Hebrew identity. They accepted this. They were given food, offered to idols. And if taken, they would experience a spiritual loss. This they did not accept. They were willing to endure the loss of material wealth, the loss of family relationships, the loss of dignity, the loss of identity. But when it came to giving up their Judeo-heritage, their belief in the God of Israel, this they did not accept. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what losses are we willing to endure and still maintain our devotion to God? When Jerusalem was sacked by Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's faith was not destroyed. Why, you might ask, how, how could this be? Daniel himself tells us that he had read in the book of the prophet Jeremiah that God said that this would happen. That Babylon would come and wipe out the city. Due to the sin of the people of Israel, God had told the prophet Jeremiah that judgment was coming through Babylon. But that's not all Daniel read. That's not the end. God also promised that he would bring his people home after a determined amount of time, a predetermined amount of time. In this case, it was 70 years. Hundreds of millions of people throughout history have been caught up in wars and other atrocities. And I'm sure many of them asked, Where is God in this? Some of us have asked this of our own personal tragedies in life. But pain and suffering should not catch the Christian by surprise. It is, after all, part of our story. When sin entered the world, evil touched everything to one degree or another. There is no pain-free existence promised to anyone in this world. And our Savior was our perfect example. Even though he did no wrong, even though there was no deceit found in his mouth, he suffered torture and death at the hands of the very people he created and loved. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16 verse 33, In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Why then would we expect to find nothing but comfort in this world? Daniel was seeing Scripture come true, even though it was really painful. But beyond that, God was offering the light of hope. He said through Jeremiah to Daniel, Home is just around the corner. If God's people would just repent and endure a little longer, home was just around the corner. I don't know about you, but this sounds like the gospel to me. In conclusion, Daniel remained a committed believer, even at the very top levels of a pagan society. How did he do it? Well, there are several things we've touched on and can learn from. Number one, he knew God rather than just knowing about God. Number two, he studied the scriptures and embraced the truth about the consequences of sin and the hope of the future. Number three, he neither segregated himself from culture nor immersed himself in culture to the point of blending in. He was in the world, but he, distinctively, was not of the world. In light of this, think of Daniel as we close with this scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13-16. to 16. Again, think of Daniel as we read this passage. Now who is there to harm you, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame.